Welcome to Season 6, Episode 14 of Horror Hill. I'm your host, Eric Peabody, and I'm really excited about the story today. Tonight's tale comes to us from the very same author who wrote Episode 12's story, The Whaler's Song. Our frightful tale for the week takes us to the great top of Raiders Hill in Radnorshire, where there sits a solitary stone that some believe resembles a weeping figure. According to folklore, the shadow it casts as the sun goes down points the way to a cave of hidden treasure. Whether the stone figure weeps because it was never able to find this bounty, or because it grieves some greater loss, nobody knows. Though, of course, there are stories to accommodate both possibilities. By the way, this story has a strong Welsh flavor to it, and, as a typical untraveled American, I am very likely to mispronounce certain words, despite my best intentions. I actually reached out to a friend of mine named Chris who grew up in Wales and asked him for pronunciation advice. For those words in this story that I pronounce correctly, you all have Chris to thank for that. For those that I mispronounce, I take the full blame myself. To those of you in the audience that notice, my deepest apologies. And here comes the Ad Break Remix! Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now, all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish, or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Well, that wasn't very remixy, was it? Huh. You're listening to the standard edition of this program. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy ad-free versions of this and all of our other episodes, as well as hundreds of tales from our audio archives dating back to 2012, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today to get instant access from our friends at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Did I mention they're ad-free? Thank you for your support. Now, allow me to escort you to a place where the sun dies and nightmares come to life. Welcome, listener, to the Horror Hill. You haven't found the darkness. The darkness has found you. And now, from author favorite Ray Cluley, I give you The Kastethmach Man. Atop Raiders Hill in Radnorshire stands a solitary stone that some believe resembles a weeping figure. According to folklore, 
The shadow it casts as the sun goes down points the way to a cave of hidden treasure, stolen goods hidden by thieves waiting for a safe time to sell. Whether the stone figure weeps because it was never able to find this bounty, or because it grieves some greater loss, nobody knows. Though, of course, there are stories to accommodate both possibilities. There are certainly plenty of caves in the area, and the hills and mountains make for rewarding hikes. Geocache findings. A toy car, a single glove, and a tarnished silver ring. The Hayward Stables guesthouse was a converted farmhouse with similarly renovated outbuildings, sturdy stone structures with heavy wooden mantles and beams. The door frames forced you to duck, and the sash windows rattled in their frames when the wind was high, but it was cozy. All of the rooms were tidy, with instantly forgettable decor. Upstairs was carpeted thick enough to muffle footsteps, whereas downstairs was all stone floor. A wide parking area extended around the back, and further down the track was an old stable that had been converted into a large storage shed, or barn, Charlie supposed. In the year since his last visit, very little about the place had changed. Even the weather was the same. Rain, rain, and more rain. The food, though, that was different. Then again, perhaps the food was exactly as it always had been, and he simply couldn't remember right. Most food tasted bland to him these days, although he would have expected farmhouse fare to have been hearty and full of flavor, whatever his mood. The wine, of course, was fine. He'd worked his way through most of a bottle of red already. He'd probably order another. It appeared there were only two other sets of guests staying at the Hayward Stables, judging by who had come to dinner. Maybe others had opted for bed and breakfast only, and maybe there was someone bedded down in the old stables. <laughs> A large stone-floored dining room had been set with rows of mismatched tables and chairs, each piece of furniture upcycled from something tatty to something deliberately disheveled and shabby chic. A young couple were trying to coax one child into eating and another into settling down, and they weren't doing a bad job. Another couple, middle-aged, sat only a table away from Charlie and bickered in hushed tones. The focus of their altercation was hidden beneath the noise of the nearby children and the persuasions of the parents, but the man seemed to be taking most of it, drinking his dark ale and listening interjecting whenever moved by a particularly forceful point. The woman was a stern kind of beautiful, but maybe that was unfair. Maybe that was only because of her current mood. Maybe she was usually more serene. Charlie used to get quite aroused whenever Lindsay was angry. He didn't know why. He'd never told her that. Perhaps he should have. Occasionally, the husband caught sight of Charlie noticing and smiled politely, embarrassed by the quiet argument. They had bonded earlier over a complaint about the slow service, though neither party had voiced their concerns to anyone else but each other. While they'd waited for their food, the man had joked, "'Shame the tables are empty. I could eat a horse,' and Charlie had laughed far too much." 
The man had noted the half-empty wine bottle while Charlie raised a glass to toast his agreement and to excuse his own reaction. He pushed a piece of sausage around the gravy on his plate and loaded it with mashed potato, but found he was no longer hungry. He never really had been. He laid the fork down just as the bickering woman wiped her mouth with a napkin she cast down like a gauntlet before excusing herself from the table. Charlie admired her legs briefly. The man made a half-hearted attempt to call her back, his volume restricted by public company. He looked around to check if they'd caused a scene. The young couple were far too busy with their own family, but Charlie had nothing better to do and he offered a tight-lipped smile in sympathy. She doesn't like the weather, the man explained. Charlie looked at the window, but the curtains had been drawn against the dark. He knew it would be raining, though, or had just been raining, or was about to rain. It had been raining for days, mostly only brief showers and a pathetic drizzle that was more like mist hanging in the air, but it was all still rain just the same. Welcome to Wales. Is it always like this, then? I'm not from here, Charlie said, and remembered the man in the barn, though he tried not to. I think this is fairly typical weather, though, yeah. We're having a bit of a staycation, the husband said. Ah. Charlie didn't care much for conversation, but the new silence between them felt uncomfortable, so he said, Well, there's plenty worth seeing around here. Lots of interesting places, if you know where to look. What brings you here? My wife, Charlie thought. Treasure hunting, he said. The man tilted his head for more, so Charlie added, Geocaching. Sorry? Charlie waved the apology away. A bit of a hobby, he explained, and took another sip of wine. It had begun as a joke, a nerdy pastime to get them both out of the house, away from the sofa and the TV. It gave them weekends of fresh air and exercise that was more fun than the gym. It gave them a chance to get to know each other again as they drove around the country, looking for geocache treasures. Charlie told the man some of this. There's a website that provides coordinates for wherever you decide to explore, and a GPS will take you to each concealed geocache, he said, pausing to refill his glass. Just a Tupperware tub or something, filled with an assortment of keepsakes. You take something, you leave something, you sign the notebook, and then you look for the next one. And this is a thing. People do this. Charlie nodded. It's fun. It had surprised Charlie to discover how much he enjoyed finding these secret places. Lindsay had admitted the same, so it was to their mutual amusement that what had begun as a joke became something of a more serious pursuit, with weekly jaunts up and down the country. There were geocaches hidden everywhere. They found them in trees, under hedgerows, submerged in ponds and rivers. They found them hidden behind road signs, tucked beneath old stone walls and concealed in ruined buildings. And as they searched, so too they came to know hidden areas of the land, beautiful places off the beaten trail. They became tourists in their own backyard, learning more about their country. It always surprised Charlie just how much there was to discover, 
Every nook and cranny of Britain held a secret, it seemed. There are these clues, Charlie said. Sometimes just coordinates to follow, but sometimes something more cryptic. Those were Lindsay's favorite. She liked to figure things out. She had me all figured out. Lindsay, that's your wife. They both looked at the empty seat opposite Charlie. The plates were clean, cutlery still napkin-wrapped. Yeah, we came here this time last year. This is sort of an anniversary. Well, congratulations. Charlie smiled a thank you into his wine, thinking, not that kind of anniversary. He tapped the wedding ring he still wore against the glass. He'd recently had it engraved with GPS coordinates. It represented their lives better than dates. The place where they met and the place where they parted suggested a journey that was both literal and metaphorical. Dates, he thought, would have seemed too much like an epitaph. Charlie took a pouch of tobacco from the pocket of his chair-backed jacket and excused himself for a cigarette. He offered the pouch, but was glad when the man declined. He didn't want to know him any better than he did already, and he'd shared too much about himself as it was. He left his wine and jacket to make it clear he was coming back, but he hoped the man would be gone by then. The Church of St. Brenach in West Dafed, Wales, was founded in the 6th century. Its churchyard boasts the Nevern Cross, which dates back to the 10th century. Fashioned from dolerite, the cross stands 13 feet high and is beautifully carved, knotwork and ringwork and geometric patterns making it one of the most impressive carved crosses in Britain. The first cuckoo of the year is thought to land on this cross to announce the coming of spring. Also in this churchyard is the Bleeding Yew. Its trunk bleeds a red resin, believed to be the blood of a monk wrongfully hanged from its branches. Geocache findings. A plastic bird. A coloring book of Celtic designs. And a packet of sweets. Out of date. Apartments.com has more pet-friendly rental listings than anywhere else. So, finding the perfect place is easier than ever, and so is finally moving in together. Just the two of you. It's a big step. Lots of new responsibilities. Lots of adjustments. Most likely, they'll wake you up at odd hours to go to the bathroom, and you'll most definitely find yourself in trouble coming home late for dinner. They might even unroll all your toilet paper next time. It's just what happens when you two find a new place together, but you're not doing it because you feel like it. No, you're doing it because you love them, because they're family. And that's why Apartments.com has the most pet-friendly rental listings on the internet so that you and your furry family can find the perfect new place together. Apartments.com the place to find a pet-friendly place. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. 
Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. It wasn't raining, but Charlie still sheltered beneath the small roof at the back of the guest house because the sky was thick with cloud. The moon appeared occasionally, but only briefly. There was plenty of light, though, thanks to an automatic security bulb that had come on as Charlie stepped outside. It illuminated a vast, puddled stretch of graveled ground and four parked cars. One of them was a people carrier, which he guessed belonged to the young couple with kids, or maybe the owners of the guest house, though there was also a mud-splattered Land Rover that he thought might have belonged to them. The Audi was probably the bickering couple's car. The other vehicle was his. For a moment, he thought there was someone sitting inside, on the passenger side, Lindsay's side, but it was only the coat he draped over the seat. Not his new one, just his old waterproof, pale gray with bright orange reflective strips up the sides and arms, and absolutely hideous because those were the rules, according to Lindsay. Right up there with good hiking boots and a packet of mint cake. Every rambler, hiker, and apparently geocacher had to have a vile waterproof jacket of clashing colors. Preferably something that folded to the size of a handkerchief or packed itself away into its own pocket somehow. Lindsay's had been orange and pink. It made her look like one of those sweets you used to be able to get from the corner shop, a rhubarb and custard. No, a fruit salad. Rhubarb and custards were the other ones, the ones that lasted forever. He rested the tobacco pouch on a nearby windowsill and set about rolling a cigarette. He tried not to look at the old stable, but failed, glancing up at the dark shape of it several times between stages of the cigarette's construction. He would take another look inside before he left. He didn't particularly want to, but he was retracing his steps and the stable was a big part of that. Plus, he needed to check if there was anybody in there. He looked at the car again instead hoping once more for that illusion of a passenger on Lindsay's side, but the coat draped over the seat was just a coat. Lindsay didn't drive, but she was a fantastic navigator. Rather than rely on any conventional kind of sat-nav, Lindsay used an app on her mobile phone with the volume down and provided her own range of voices, using outlandish, often terrible, accents mimicking celebrities and sometimes people they both knew. Sometimes she made up characters, like Farmer Jones, That be the wrong way, lad, and Lady Weatherby. Oh, do be careful, driver. She changed the voices whenever Charlie laughed. It was a game they had. Oh, no, she'd say, her voice overly robotic. You do not want to go that way. Or she'd urge, The other way, the other way! 
in a voice filled with feigned panic, all the while calm as she looked out at the passenger window at whatever part of the countryside they were passing through. This is not the right way. It is. At the traffic lights, make a U-turn. There are no traffic lights. At the next junction, go off-road. In this car? At the next dealership, purchase a new vehicle. That's how she was. Warning, we are low on fuel. We're fine. Warning, we need coffee and chocolate or we will become annoying. Become annoying? Advisory, coffee and chocolate will lead to sexual gratitude. That would be tempting if you weren't Stephen Hawking. She'd laughed at that, loud and sudden and surprised, then covered her mouth with both hands. Oh, that's wrong. I just don't find him attractive. You're not supposed to find anyone attractive. What about anyone else attractive? Then, serious. You do still find me attractive, right? Charlie smiled. He was standing outside in the cold, smoking in full view of the stables that marked the beginning of the end, but he was also back in the car, back with Lindsay who was asking, Are we there yet? Nearly. What about now? Nearly. What about Lynn's? He looked over at the converted stables. It was a large but surprisingly squat building with a sloping roof of corrugated metal. He remembered how it drummed with the rain. Inside was a vast open space. If there had ever been stalls for horses, they were gone now. In fact, there was little to suggest they were ever stables at all, other than the name of the guesthouse, and he supposed that could have been a deliberate misnomer, something quaint and countrified to lure the tourists. The inside had smelled wet and warm, bales of summer-baked hay wrapped in plastic yet somehow releasing an aroma so that rain seemed to mix with sunshine. There was a metallic smell, too, and oil, from a vehicle that was not quite a tractor sitting guard in the open double doors, the tines of its threshing machinery like some medieval war machine to keep people out. It hadn't deterred them, though. If only it had. Those doors were closed now, the machine tucked away inside, if it was there at all. Charlie exhaled a final stream of smoke with a sigh. If the fucking thing had been parked away properly in the first place, the giant doors shut, then they never would have gone inside. They'd have forgone the novelty of the setting and had sex back in their own room instead, only yards away. Charlie dropped what remained of his cigarette and twisted it dead under his heel. You look angry. It sounded like Lindsay's voice, but it was only in his head. Still, it made him smile. You look angry. Had been one of their geocache clues last time they were in Wales. It had looked like a code at first. Udiken Edriken Dig but it wasn't long after crossing into Wales that they'd realized it was simply Welsh. Udiken Edriken Vig, You Look Angry, became a game so that whenever one of them said it in the car, thinking aloud, trying to figure it out, the other would offer a reply. 
It's just the way my face looks. You stole the covers last night. I'm trying to fart. Not all of the locations came with clues or riddles, but those that did were Lindsay's favorites, and she never googled the clues or read the message boards in the community forum. Nothing like that. She never cheated, not when it came to geocaching. They figured them out together, just like they did everything else. You look angry was a clue for St. Brenach Church. St. Brenach Church, named after... Wow, St. Brenach, Lindsay said. Sixth century chapel, famous for the Nevern Cross or Great Cross of St. Brenach, one of the finest in Wales, 13 feet high. Lindsay liked to research everywhere they went, but only after they'd arrived to avoid what she called spoilers. While she read to him from her phone, Charlie used his to take pictures. He'd usually manage a few secret ones of Lindsay before she spotted him, and then she'd strike ridiculous poses or give him the dreaded duck-face pout. At St. Brunach's, she hadn't noticed for ages, too busy searching among the gravestones. So after he'd taken a few shots of her bending over, he turned the phone around for a secret selfie or two he'd send her later. You look angry. As Charlie was contorting his face into an ugly sneer, he'd assumed she'd caught him, but looking up, still sneering, he saw that she had her back to him among the graves. She patted one of them before turning to face him. You look angry, she said again. Cross. Angry is cross, get it? The Nevern cross, probably. And you is probably you tree. The one I told you about, the one that bleeds. She pointed and said, You lead the way. Charlie gave her one of his pity smiles. Shut up, I'm hilarious. Among the gravestones, Charlie said, Honey, I love doing this with you, but I'm not digging up a grave. I've got my limits. Yet, here he was, a year later digging up what should probably be left alone. He contemplated another cigarette, but it began to rain again, so he went back inside. Dryberg Abbey, in Scotland, stands as a remarkably complete set of ruins. It contains paintwork that dates back to its construction in 1150 and remains one of the most beautiful examples of Gothic architecture. According to legend, a woman who lost her lover made a home in one of the vaults and swore never to look upon the sun again until her lover returned. Learning he had died, she only ever came out from the vault at night, living a half-life of loss and loneliness. Geocache findings. A heart-shaped fridge magnet. A novelty pen. An ornate thimble. Whatever the couple had been bickering about was either resolved or temporarily forgotten by the time Charlie returned to his room. He was reminded of how thin the walls were by the sounds of their passionate makeup sex. Or maybe it was angry sex. Fuck you sex, Charlie thought, unamused by his own pun. You look angry. It sounded like good sex, whatever it was. Charlie undressed and stretched out on his own bed. He matched his rhythm to the sounds from next door, 
masturbating to the squeak and creak of their bed springs and looking at a photograph of Lindsay he had on the bedside table. Eventually, the woman's climax drew a scowling one from him, and he was able, at last, to sleep. Krogue Patrick is a holy mountain that rises 765 meters above sea level and overlooks Clue Bay in Ireland. It is believed that St. Patrick made his way here from Ahagaur and spent 40 nights on its summit praying and fasting and casting out demons. Time has altered the legend so that demons have become snakes instead. Geocache findings. None. Not yet visited. In the morning, Charlie skipped breakfast and went out to his car for the geocache he'd left on the back seat, a little of the secret life of Lindsay and Charlie West. Deliberately awful poems Lindsay used to leave for him around the house. I love you like blue loves sky, oh me, oh my. A strip of photo booth pictures. Lindsay flashing her boobs, never breasts, never tits. Pictures they used to keep on the fridge and had to remember to take down every time they had visitors, and forgetting on more than one occasion. A length of rope, look out for snakes. He had considered leaving his wedding ring too, but he couldn't bring himself to do it. Not yet. There was no comments book inside either, because this would be a geocache he never registered online. If anyone ever found it, it would be the owners of the Hayward stables during some cleanup or sort-out. Putting it here was entirely for his own benefit, like flowers on a grave. The car was still wet from last night's rain. Puddles the size of small lakes blotted the gravel drive and the early morning air held the smell of wet grass. Charlie took a deep breath of it and looked to the sky. Gray, but not raining, and somehow clean-looking, as if gray was its usual color and it had just needed the blue washing out. Charlie hadn't bothered to lock the car. There was nothing left he couldn't bear to lose. And he was glad not to ruin the peace of the country morning with the electronic blip-blip of central locking. He retrieved the container from the back seat and closed the door again, its soft thump the only sound to disturb the quiet except for the crunch and scrape of gravel underfoot as he made his way to the old stables that might never have been stables. The large doors were closed. Would they be locked, though? Were they more careful since the Kastethmach man? He doubted it. As he neared, Charlie looked out for a coil of chain wrapped around the handle grips or a large padlock clasped closed, or both, but there was no such thing. He tucked the Tupperware box under his arm, wedged high into his armpit, looking around for anyone who might see him, and gripped the door with both hands. It was a large one that slid across, essentially a moving wall more than a door, and he expected it to be heavy, but it moved easily and quietly, its bearings well-oiled. He opened it only enough to step inside and closed it again behind him. For a moment, it was pitch black dark. He heard birds waking up above him somewhere and smelled the damp, sweet aroma of hay and feed and maybe manure, the sharp tang of petrol and machine oil, but he saw nothing. 
Eventually, his eyes adjusted to the gloom, gray light filtering in through rusted holes in the metal walls and roof and through the sheets of newspaper that had been stuck over a large window. Most of the floor space had been taken up by a temporary holding pen made up of boards held between breeze blocks. There was no sign of any livestock, but as a veteran geocacher, Charlie recognized the pellets of sheep droppings. At the back of the building, a stack of stored hay. That was where, a year ago, he and Lindsay had enjoyed a private moment, a secret moment that turned out to be less secret than they had supposed. And over there, between the hay and a workbench cluttered with tools, that had been where the Kastethmach man had loitered, unseen at first, bedded down in a spill of hay and bundled blankets and tarp. They'd been walking the grounds, exploring the fields just before dusk. It had been good to just walk together without searching for a geocache. There weren't any locations nearby, not then and they had held hands and talked and made new promises to each other. To try harder. To do more fun stuff. She would be faithful. He would be more spontaneous. As they'd neared the Hayward stables, Lindsay had picked up the pace, claiming she wanted to get back before proper dark and the inevitable rain, but walking with an urgency that suggested something else. You need to pee, don't you? Maybe. They only made it as far as the stables or barn or whatever the building was before Lindsay had to relieve herself. She squatted behind a plastic rain barrel and a leaning stack of wooden pallets. Watch out for ropes, Charlie had warned. Back when they'd first started geocaching, one of the treasure boxes had been hidden among the roots of a fallen tree. Lindsay had crouched beside the trunk, reaching for an opening in the soil but before she could finish a feeble joke about rooting around, she'd leapt away with a scream of, Snake! And the two of them had fled. The snake turned out to be a length of dirty rope, some coiled excess from what had been used to secure the geocache container to the tree stump. Charlie had teased Lindsay about it forever since. This new teasing, as she peed, saw her hand come up from behind the water barrel to give him the middle finger. You look angry, Charlie said. An old joke by then, but one they still used occasionally. There aren't any snakes in Wales, Lindsay said, standing and pulling her jeans up with her. You're thinking of Ireland. She'd put her hand to her chest in mock distress, gave him another of her voices, temporarily Irish. You mean there are snakes in Wales? Baby, he'd said. Wales has fucking dragons. Worse than dragons. While Lindsay buttoned up, Charlie joked that she shouldn't bother. At least, it had started as a joke. But because she'd stopped to joke back, Oh yeah? Why's that? Instead of simply dismissing his suggestion, he'd taken her by the hand and pulled her towards the open door. Her only protest had been an unconvincing... We can't. But it turned out they could, and they did, rougher and wilder and louder than they had been in a long time. Proof, if any was needed, that they still had something. Reassurance for Charlie that she was still interested in him beyond the comfort and companionship of a long-term relationship. 
Reassurance for her, he supposed, that he could still be passionate and commanding. Afterwards, panting from where she lay bent over a collapsed bale of hay, Lindsay had expressed surprise and gratification with the exclamation, Fuck! Again? Okay, five minutes. She had made a pathetic backward slap at him without looking, exhaling a laugh that had little sound as she tried to catch her breath, but Charlie had already stepped away from her to get dressed again. He swatted her behind, gently this time, and placed her clothes beside her. He kissed her back, and when she rolled over with an exaggerated sigh, he kissed her breasts until she sat up. They were crisscrossed with lines from where she'd been pressed against the hay, and strands were stuck to her sweaty skin. He helped her brush them away until she brushed him away, slapping at his hands. If you want to help, you can find my shoes. The shoes had been such a struggle to remove in the heat of the moment, stuck in her jeans, that Charlie had thrown them aside when they were finally off. Charlie? Yeah, I'm looking. He was peering into the shadows on the ground when Lindsay called to him again, quieter this time, but with a new tone that made it sound more urgent. Charlie? She had her t-shirt on but also held her arm across her chest while the other pushed her jumper and jeans into her lap, between her legs. Linz? She didn't answer or turn to face him, and finally Charlie saw what she was looking at. Who? she was looking at. The Kastethmach man. He was wearing a hat, that fucking stupid hat with the flaps that came down over the ears. He was wearing an old army jacket too, the type that was fashionable when Charlie was young if you wanted to prove how alternative or grungy you were. Army surplus with deep pockets, faded green, and if you were particularly rebellious or quirky, Maybe you had a foreign flag stitched into the shoulder. His jeans were scruffy. Charlie couldn't see the man's boots properly, but they were probably DMs. Oh shit, sorry, Charlie said. We just... It was raining, Lindsay said, slipping down from the hay bale to hide the lower half of her body. When that part of her was out of view, she immediately stepped into her jeans, underwear be damned. It hadn't been raining, not quite, but it was now. It drummed loudly against the roof. The man exhaled forcefully from his mouth so that his lips trembled. Charlie couldn't tell if it was disbelief or amusement or anger or what. Sorry, Charlie said again, casting a quick look around again to ensure they had everything. He saw a pile of makeshift bedding tucked away in the dark. A spill of belongings were spread across the ground nearby. The man scratched at what he had of a beard and said, Not from here. Charlie didn't know if he meant them, or, judging by the rough bedding, himself. No, we're just... No. You? You staying here as well? Partly, Charlie was trying to ascertain whether he and Lindsay were in any kind of trouble. He was fairly certain the man was not one of the owners, and though there was a chance he was a farmhand or something, Charlie supposed the man was actually homeless, or a traveler, bedding down for the night out of the rain. Whatever and whoever he was, 
Charlie wanted to distract him from Lindsay, who was subtly trying to dress herself. The man stamped one foot a couple of times and dragged it back across the floor, as if trying to scrape something from his boot. I'm the Kastathmach man. I told you. Lindsay shared a look with Charlie. It was a mildly judgmental look, as in she judged the man was mildly mental. I mean, I didn't tell you I was from Kastathmach, the man said. Just not that I'm from here. Not from here. I said that. Right. The man nodded. He looked at Lindsay, dressing. So is that in Wales, then? Charlie asked. Castethmark? Castethmark is in Abersok, across the sea. He pointed in a direction that meant nothing to Charlie. Oh, right. Is it an island? The man laughed. Abersok's not an island. He looked at Lindsay, who had just plucked items of underwear from the ground, bunching them into a tangle of lace and straps and bra cups, which she tried to hold casually. He grinned at her as if they shared a private joke or secret intimacy. He thinks Abersoch is an island. He's not very clever, Lindsay said with a quick smile. Hey, said Charlie, I'm right here. It's not an island, the man explained. It's across the bay. Okay. I'm going to Cottage Castle. Okay. Lindsay was looking for her shoes. Charlie made a show of helping her so that he was too busy for further conversation. How about some music? The man asked. He reached down to the array of things scattered on and around his bed. Charlie expected a radio, but the man produced a flute. No, a whistle, a recorder or something. But surely he wasn't going to. The man began to play. The look Lindsay gave Charlie was loaded with amusement, a smile in her eyes that acknowledged just how strange all of this was turning out to be. They would have fun later talking about it, the look said. She'd probably add this man to her repertoire of sat-nav character voices, Charlie thought. The whistling was shrill, but the open space of the large building seemed to soften it a little lending a haunting echo that wasn't exactly unpleasant within the drumming sound of rain. There was a melody, and the man played with a burst of enthusiasm that made it lively at first, but his joy dwindled quickly, and he stopped as abruptly as he had began. Do you know that song? Lindsay shook her head. Charlie said, no, and wondered if they'd been expected to sing along or dance or something. He wondered if they defended him somehow. The man's scowl was only for his whistle, though. That wasn't the song I meant to play, he said, pocketing the instrument. I think it's broken. Lindsay laughed, partly in case it was a joke and partly because this was all just too weird. Charlie laughed a little with her, glad when the man smiled because he knew it meant they were laughing with him instead of at him. Kind of. The man withdrew a pouch of tobacco from his coat pocket. He offered it, but they both shook their heads no. Eh, don't smoke, Charlie told him. Lindsay said, My shoes. 
The man put his tobacco aside and crouched out of sight. When he stood again, he had two hiking boots, one in each hand. He held them by his sides. Great, said Lindsay. Thanks. The man made no move to offer them, though. Want to hit a joke? He said. We better get back inside, Lindsay said. She reached for her shoes. The man made an underarm gesture with one of them. He did it a second time, but didn't throw. Go on, then, Charlie said. He meant, go on, throw the boots, but the man used it as an excuse to tell his joke. Lindsay's boots held by his sides. Two men in a pub, right? One of them, he goes to find a table, see, and the other one gets the drinks in. Pint for me and my donkey. Charlie nodded. Clearly they had to listen to the joke as some part of an exchange. But when the man kept repeating the character's drink order, Charlie nodded again to hurry the man along. So this happens a few times, same one going to the bar and saying, Pint for me and my donkey, until eventually the other guy comes to the bar instead. Before he can order, the barman says, Your friend over there keeps calling you his donkey. And the customer, he nods and says, Charlie knew the joke, he realized but it had taken until now for him to remember the punchline. The man still surprised him, though. Oh, hee-haw, hee-haw, hee-haw always calls me that. The man brayed loud enough that each hee-haw sounded like a scream, a shrill, then guttural cry bouncing around in the confines of the barn. The sudden noise and volume startled both of them as did the way the man thrust his head forward for each outburst, his lips peeled back against large slabs of teeth. Lindsay had recoiled, pressing herself against a wall of stacked hay bales, wide-eyed. Charlie took her hand. "'Do you get it?' the man asked them, and without waiting for a response, he said again, "'He always calls me that! Yeah!" <laughs> The final cry dissolved into laughter, and Charlie laughed as well this time. Not at the joke, but in a kind of anxious release. The man wiped tears from his eyes, still offering the occasional chuckle and sigh. Okay, Charlie said. Boots now, yeah? The man nodded. You have a spirited filly, he said. Sorry, what? Spirited, the man said. He looked at Lindsay. This filly likes a good ride. Hey, said Charlie, and fuck, said Lindsay. The man laughed again. To Lindsay, he said, eager filly. And to Charlie, you ride her well. And then he tossed the boots. He threw them underarm, but he did it quick, and Charlie had to twist and turn to try to catch them, missing both. Lindsay gathered them up and pulled them on quick, laces loose, and Charlie turned her by the shoulders, guiding her outside and away, pushing her ahead of him. Behind them, the braying laughter of the man followed them out into the dark. Charlie reported him to the owners. He did that much, at least. He gave them a slightly edited version of events, in which he swapped post-coital surprise for seeing someone sneaking into the outbuilding, and in the morning their breakfast was served with the reassurance that the man was gone. 
As to whether he'd been sent on right away or asked to leave that morning, the owners had been rather vague about that. It happens sometimes, the wife had said, adding, We should really keep it locked, I suppose. Well, they still don't lock it, Charlie thought, and he was glad. He found a place behind the workbench where a metal brace and a supporting beam crossed. X marks the spot. And there, in a small nook close to the wall, he stowed his geocache of memories. Sadie's Lane in Dorset, England, is reported to be one of the most haunted roads in the country. It came by its name in the early 18th century when a farm girl called Sadie Young allegedly rode her horse to its death as she raced to meet a lover who had abandoned her. Pitched from the fallen animal, Sadie was also killed and is said to haunt what is now a busy relief road. The location has since attracted several other ghosts, each of them linked to tales of heartbreak and loss. It is now a popular suicide spot. Geocache Findings A Selection of Pressed Flowers and a Chess Piece Rook Leaving the outbuilding, stepping from the dark into a morning still fresh and clean and gray, Charlie was greeted by last night's couple approaching their car, the Audi. The woman smiled, the kind of polite smile you give to strangers with whom you share a certain level of intimacy like those in the same train carriage or a doctor's waiting room. If she had known just how intimate they were, now, after last night, she probably wouldn't have smiled, Charlie thought. Or maybe she would. Maybe she was well aware of how loud they'd been. Today she was dressed in a jeans and jumper ensemble that was practical yet still somehow stylish, more town clothes than country. Charlie admired how the denim fit her. Beautiful, eh? The husband said to Charlie. That fresh country air. Charlie nodded, more in hello than as an answer. Morning, he said, stepping to his own car. Thought we might look for some of those interesting places you mentioned, the man said. He waved a folded leaflet to support his point. Charlie had seen a limited selection of them fanned out on a table in the dining room. Be sure to visit Carig Castle, Charlie said, slipping the name in with little fanfare. The man opened up the leaflet to look, but Charlie gave him directions anyway, hearing in his head one of Lindsay's wonderful sat-nav voices in echo. Just heading there myself, but I recommend you try it around sundown. It's a bit spooky, but beautiful. Romantic. Thanks, said the woman, and this time her smile was a little warmer. Yeah, appreciate it said her husband. Charlie prepared a cigarette, concentrating on the task until he heard the double thunk of car doors closing. Then he watched them for a moment, a silent movie behind the windscreen. They seemed happy now, but then so did many couples. Anyone could look happy if they buried their secrets deep enough. Charlie watched them reverse out of the parking area. For a moment, when she turned around in her seat... The woman looked like Lindsay, that quick profile and final look at Charlie that disappeared as they turned away and were gone. Charlie smoked his cigarette. He didn't smoke in the car because Lindsay wouldn't have liked it, but seeing her waterproof parceled up into itself on the back seat, he leaned in to retrieve it, careful to hold the roll up outside the whole time. 
He turned the coat out, unzipped it open, and shook it into shape. He draped it over his on the passenger seat. From the corner of his eye, perhaps it would seem as if she had accompanied his drive. It was a pathetic hope, but strangely soothing. Okay, he said, finishing the cigarette, and though there was no one to say it to but himself, added, Let's go. For a lot of the journey, the roads passed through open countryside, fields dropping into valleys or climbing into hills, distant sheep scattered like chewed lumps of gum. Tiny towns, or perhaps villages, passed so quickly that moments later Charlie wondered at their existence. Eventually, though, the hills closed in and the road cut its way through trees and shadow. The lanes became choked with mud, and vast puddles made sections into shallow rivers. The hedgerows pressed close, sometimes scraping the car on tight corners. Charlie tried to focus his attention on the road, assessing when to slow down, when to speed up, balancing the risks of soft ground and floods by fluctuating between two speeds in a sort of compromise against getting stuck and losing control. He rushed through puddles in a shushed thunder of spray that drummed underneath the car and spread in sheets on either side. On the back seat, another geocache container rattled as it slid left and right with the corners and jumped with the bumps and dips of the road. There was only one item inside. He'd been hiding geocaches up and down the British Isles for most of the last six months, building up to this moment little boxes of their life together, here and there. Their old GPS from back before they simply used apps on their phones. A half-eaten mint cake, which neither of them liked because it made their teeth feel funny, but which they brought anyway because it was one of the rules, like the hideous waterproofs. He wondered how many people had walked past them, these secret geocaches, never knowing what was there, and he thought, well... Life's like that, isn't it? Everybody has a story you don't get to hear. Even in a relationship, there were things you didn't learn until far down the line together. Or things changed, and maybe you didn't always like what you found. Lindsay had thought she knew all there was to know about Charlie, and he used to think the same of her. For him, that familiarity brought comfort. For her, it was different. He slowed the car just as an oncoming vehicle turned into the road ahead, blocking the entire width. The driver made a token effort to move aside, but there was no way they were going to squeeze past each other. Charlie checked behind him and maneuvered the car backwards. Attention! This vehicle is reversing! That's what Lindsay would have said as Charlie maneuvered the vehicle back. Bleep, bleep! Attention! This vehicle is reversing! Then the warning again, and then the bleeps, and then the warning again, and then the bleeps until... Lynn's. Her name sounded lost with no one to answer it. Charlie looked at the empty seat beside him, but the waterproof there remained simply a waterproof, hanging like a thin corpse. An empty shroud, trying too hard to be bright and cheerful. The other car followed Charlie keeping close as if Charlie might change his mind, pushing him back. As soon as there was room, it pulled out and passed. 
If there was a thank you, Charlie didn't see it. You're welcome. He changed gears from reverse to first, and the car rocked in place. That was all. For a moment, he thought he was stuck. Come on. But all he'd done was stall it. Overcompensating with the revs, he sent a fantail of mud spraying behind him as he pulled away again. Better to lose control than get stuck in place, he thought. Hurrying towards something he'd never find with nothing left to lose but himself. Kareg Kennan Castle can be found in the village of Trap about four miles from Thlandilo in Carmartonshire, Wales. It stands on a limestone precipice, and within its bowels there is a tunnel which leads to a well, said to hold mystical healing properties, particularly regarding ear and eye complaints. Visitors to the castle often cast corks and bent pins into the water in order to be healed. Geocache findings. Four out of five caches. A novelty key ring. A decorative bookmark. A plastic toy knight. A pocket of crayons, a rubber sheep, a deck of pornographic cards, a two-pound coin, two bottle openers, a candle. The first time he'd seen Kareg Castle was between the stutters of the windscreen wipers, leaning forward to peer through the glass as if a few more inches would allow him to see it more clearly. Back then, the sun had barely been out all day, and what there was of it was sinking behind the hill the castle stood upon, the sky taking on the deepening blue tones of early evening with some red shining behind and between the ruined walls. Part of the hill dropped away as a sheer cliff, so that the castle walls on one edge seemed to merge seamlessly into the precipice. "'Spooky,' said Lindsay. This time, it looked postcard picture perfect." The sky had cleared by the time he'd reached the castle, the sun having burnt away the misty haze of the early hours to reveal a sharpening bright blue sky dotted with clouds that hung motionless in a panorama that was beautiful and also completely wrong. It should have looked ugly. It should have been pissing down and miserable and the end of the world. There had been a sequence of geocaches here, it happened that way sometimes, especially with popular landmark locations. Clues to one revealed clues to another, and so on, giving you a good walk while building to what usually turned out to be an anticlimax. But then, geocaching was never really about what you found at the end. It was the journey, as cliched as that seemed. The spending time together. It was learning more about your own country, the secret spectacles of home, learning more about each other and hoping you liked it. They'd found the first geocache easily. Some of a stone wall had fallen and tucked amongst the rocks was an ice cream container bearing a strip of masking tape across its lid that declared, simply, geocache. Inside, they'd found yet another Welsh key ring, this time a flat rubber oval with Carrig Castle and bas relief, a decorative bookmark, or quitter's strip, as Lindsay used to call them, and a plastic toy. The toy was an armored knight. He held a lance before him and his legs were unnaturally bowed, a half-circle scoop as if there had been a horse below him as well at some point. They took the horseless knight and left the keyring and bookmark, 
adding a yo-yo for whoever came next. Take something, leave something, move on. Another strip of masking tape inside the container provided a new clue, and they followed it to the next location, and then again, and so on, until they were at the castle. It had become something of a silhouette in the fading light, and a cool evening breeze tousled Lindsay's hair as she looked down at the glowing phone in her hand. We better get a move on if we want to get the last geocache. It's in the castle somewhere, and it'll be closed soon. The castle was privately owned, but still open to the public. It has a tea room and everything, Lindsay told him, scrolling through information on her phone, offering Charlie the highlights. She gave him details about the accidental sale of the castle, gave him particulars of its history and structure, its six towers, the drawbridges, the chapel, all of it, speeding through centuries. It's mostly limestone here, she said, and there's an underground tunnel that'll take us to where the last cache is, I think. A hundred and fifty feet of tunnel leads you to a well, believed to hold mystical healing powers. That's what it says. You throw corks or pins in and make a wish. It's particularly good at healing ear and eye complaints, apparently, which is why I think the cache is there, because of the clue. You'll do well to keep your eyes open, which is a crap clue, but it makes sense. Why corks and pins? She shrugged. Doesn't say. Charlie wondered at what else it didn't say as he made his way towards the castle again. As he walked among the shake holes, sunken depressions in the soil and cracked stone, he also wondered how Lindsay made her decisions about what to share and what to not, and would she have left him anyway if it hadn't been for the Casteth Markman. At the castle, Charlie descended into a gloom that suited his mood. The stone stairs were slippery with old rain, and the castle's outer wall close beside him seemed like it was leaning, as if it wanted to push him over the edge. He imagined falling. He imagined it lots of times. But he didn't fall, and soon he was standing before a long, narrow gash in the cliff face. Hardly any light penetrated the passageway, especially with his body blocking what there was of it, and he didn't have a phone this time to illuminate the way. He'd never replaced his, and the police still had Lindsay's. Knowing how much darker it would become, he didn't bother waiting for his eyes to adjust and simply plunged right in. Here we go. He was swallowed into nothing by the darkness. Arms out to his sides, he used the walls to guide him deeper. The stone was smooth and dry, but very cold. He stooped, remembering how low the passageway became in places, and sometimes he was more comfortable turning sideways, but eventually he came to the standing pool of water where Lindsay had joked about Gollum. She'd hissed, My precious, into his ear in the dark. I expected an actual well. Charlie backed up a few steps and sat. He was wearing his new coat, which was long enough to offer him some protection against the cold stone. In one of its deep pockets was the Tupperware geocache he'd brought, shallow but long, perfect for what it held. He checked his watch, its light casting an eerie green glow that only seemed to make the dark darker. He was early. He waited. 
Charlie had shown the light of his phone around the perimeter of the pool that first time. There were shapes floating on the surface and gathered at the edges. Corks. Some of them had pins pushed through them. Back then, he'd had to psych himself up to put his hand in the water, and he gasped at the temperature. This time, he merely reached out and caressed the surface of the pool, making small waves in the darkness. He felt a cork or two against his palm. He had stabbed himself last time on pins at the bottom of the pool, reaching for a geocache they never found. He had dropped his phone, swearing. For a moment, the light had stayed on at the bottom of the pool, and he'd grabbed it up again quickly, as if speed could stop it from becoming more wet. Tried to shake it dry. What? Lindsay asked. What? And dropped my fucking phone. Yeah, but why? Well, I didn't mean to. I mean, did you hurt yourself? Did something bite you or something? There'd only been the brief sting of pins. I'm okay. How's the phone? It was fine, until he pressed a button to check if it was fine, and then the screen went black and the torchlight went out. Shit. Well done. Shush. You shush. Lindsay had lit the tunnel with her phone instead, but Charlie took it from her and plunged them back into the dark. He found Lindsay's arm, her hand. He pulled her close and found something else, and she'd said, Hey! We'll have to grope our way out. Funny man. And they had kissed. He remembered that very well. Sometimes, when he couldn't sleep, he'd close his eyes as tight as he could to replicate the utter darkness of that moment, and he'd remember the kisses they'd shared under the castle, buried in its rock. He couldn't tell any more if they only felt like final kisses now in retrospect, or if he'd known it even then. We should pick up some rice when we get out, Lindsay said, breaking away. For your phone. Does that actually work? He felt her shrug. Saw it on Facebook, so it must be true. Absorbs the water or something. You remember Jenny from... Shh. No, I'm telling you a fascinating story. I think someone else is here. Listen. They strained their ears to hear. Charlie turned his head and, for some reason, opened his mouth. He found that helped sometimes. This time, it did. Hear that? He whispered. Yeah, someone's coming. And yet neither of them felt relieved. Maybe because whoever was coming did so without a light. As if they'd agreed it between them, neither of them called out or made any noise, and though Charlie had Lindsay's phone, he didn't even consider using its light. He backed away, deeper into the passageway, pulling Lindsay with him, keeping close to the wall. It was the Kastethmach man, of course. For a while, he was only the scrape of footsteps, but somehow they'd known... Why else would they have remained so quiet? Why else had they tried to hide, when the normal thing to have done would have been to greet whoever else had come to this special place? He was singing something softly to himself. Welsh words, unfamiliar, but Charlie thought he recognized the tune. 
Lindsay's breath was warm in Charlie's ear. Her mouth was so close that he felt her lips on him as she said, It's him. He went to turn his head to whisper back, but she held him still and said, lips to his ear, It's the Kastethmach man. The voice in the darkness with them was suddenly quiet, and though Charlie hadn't been able to follow the song properly, he could still tell it had stopped mid-line. Somebody's there, said the man. Lindsay squeezed Charlie's arm tight, but the two of them remained quiet. There was nothing to be afraid of, he thought. Not really. Who's there? the voice called. Why are you spying on me? They waited, silent, holding their breath and each other's hand. Who's spying on me? Charlie said, We're not spying, and lit up the dark with Lindsay's phone. Her grip on his arm tightened and they saw, together, the man crouching at the pool, that hat in his hands, and... Charlie thought he saw... He thought, but he must have been wrong. He thought he saw the man's ears, long and pointed and furred, twitching at Charlie's voice. Horses' ears. Then everything was a chaos of movement and noise. The Kastathmach man leapt to his feet, literally bounding up and across at them on all fours. He knocked Charlie aside and into the wall, hitting him harder than he'd have thought possible for a man of such build. Charlie dropped the phone, but not into the pool this time. Its light stayed on, but the device was kicked several times in the to and fro of a scuffle. Lindsay cried out and swore, and Charlie yanked at her and pushed at the other, and they splashed through the shallows of icy water as the man cried out, "'You saw me!' his voice bouncing around and back at them in the confines of the tunnel. You saw me! Up close, Charlie saw the man definitely had horse ears. They stuck up from lank hair that swept from his head and down his back like a mane. He had one arm around Lindsay from behind, and then he leapt up so that he was on her back. Charlie tried to grab him, push him away, pull him down... And Lindsay turned around, tried to run, tried to shake the man off. The Kastathmach man gripped her firm, though, fierce, his legs around her waist now. He reached down between her breasts with one hand, holding a bunch of her jumper in his fist, gripping at her ribs, and the other held a tangle of her hair, and he was laughing or he was screaming, it was hard to tell, all his noise coming out shrill and echoing back at them. His eyes were wide and he frothed at the mouth, Charlie thought, and he rocked against Lindsay's back, urging her on, pulling at her hair to guide her direction as she tried to run from him, though he clung to her. Charlie saw her stagger the way they'd come and he pushed after them as the man's cries whinnied back and forth in the dark. Near the entrance, they became a hectic silhouette, Lindsay was bent under the man's weight, but still on her feet, ricocheting off the walls of the tunnel either side as the man held himself fast against her. Upon her, one hand twisted in her hair and his groin rocking against her as if dry-humping her back, playing giddy-up. 
In a panicked pirouette, Charlie saw his wife's head turn, saw her look at him a final time, the Kastethmach man leaning over with his cheek against hers and his ears, those stupid fucking twitching ears, and then the two of them were gone. They dropped away into open space, and Charlie had to pull up hard to stop from following them over the edge and down. Charlie had called out his anguish then, but now it was little more than a soft mewling sound in the dark as he remembered. Take something, leave something, move on, he thought. Lindsay had been taken, he had been left behind, and if anyone had moved on then it wasn't him. There had been no bodies down there. But in his dreams, there were. Sometimes Lindsay's, sometimes his own. Sometimes he saw her carried away, the Kastethmach man's bandy legs striding in great bounds. Sometimes it was Lindsay who fled, carrying the strange man with her. The police found no trace of either person. They probably weren't even looking anymore, but Charlie was leaving his geocaches with clues only Lindsay would understand, looking for her up and down the country. He wondered if she was looking for him, just as he wondered, sometimes, about that final look she gave him. Sometimes he remembered fear, other times, excitement. Occasionally, what he saw, or thought he saw, was relief. Charlie removed his wedding ring and, sitting on the ground, traced his finger over the engraving inside, the coordinates marking their life together. One of them was this one, Kareg Castle, where the water was said to hold mystical healing properties. The eyes and the ears and, maybe, Charlie hoped, the heart. He cast his ring into the water. There was barely any splash at all when really it should have thundered. Then, from his pocket, he took the final Tupperware container. He was wearing a new coat and the pockets were deep. From another, he took the hat. In that struggle a year ago, he had torn the Kastethmach's man's pocket and something had fallen from it. He had it now, in this final container, his wooden flute or whistle or recorder, whatever the fuck it was. He took the instrument from its box and put it to his lips and played. It didn't take him long to get the tune right. Maybe it would call them back. Isn't that how it worked in the old stories? Maybe one of them, at least, would come. Someone. Anyone. He played and he played until finally he thought he heard something. Voices coming to him in the dark. He raised one of the flaps of the hat he'd put on and turned his ear to listen. Yes, voices. A man and a woman. He thought perhaps they were bickering, but that was okay. That might be better, actually. He pocketed the whistle and the hat and stood. Take something, leave something, he thought. 
He pressed himself against one of the walls, hiding in the dark it made, and he waited. In Abersoch, there is a 17th century mansion that goes by the name of Kastethmach. According to legend, it was once the home of one of King Arthur's knights, Marchamerchion, who had the ears of a horse. He kept them hidden, but occasionally someone would discover his secret, and March, whose name means horse in Welsh, would be forced to kill them. He hid the bodies in a nearby bed of reeds. His true nature was finally discovered when a boy made a flute from one of the reeds, and the only song the flute could play was Marcha Amerchion has horse's ears. Nobody knows what became of Marcha Merchion, but it is believed he had several children, and that his line continues to this day. You've been listening to The Kastethmach Man by Ray Cluley. Thank you so much for tuning in this evening. I'm your host, Eric Peabody, and I'll see you right here at this same time next week for more terrifying tales, sinister stories, and frightening fables. All of that good stuff. If you enjoyed what you heard on today's program, please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page, or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts, and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference and would mean a lot to me. If you'd like to hear a premium, ad-free edition of tonight's and all of our other episodes, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the Patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com, where you can become a patron for as little as $5 per month and get access to our entire audio archive dating back to 2012, including past episodes of this program, all of our other shows, and hundreds of standalone releases, all of them ad-free and available to download or stream. Thanks so much for your time and for giving our sponsors a try today. When you support our sponsors, you help support this show, and that means a lot to me. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. You'll find me personally on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, username VikingGuitar, and also on Instagram as Viking Guitar Productions. Until next week, listener, when we meet up once again atop the Horror Hill for yet another Dance with Darkness, I bid you good night. Sleep tight, listener, and whatever you do, if you hear scratching at your door, don't open it. The darkness may have found you, but it's up to you to let it in. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Horror Hill Podcast, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. 
Tonight's episode was hosted by, and its featured tale performed by, yours truly, Eric Peabody. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Felipe Ojeda. Finalization by Craig Groshek and S.K. Brown. Got a terrifying tale of your own that you'd like performed? I do take submissions. Email it to us today at submissions at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your work considered for future production. If you enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, please subscribe to us to make sure that you never miss an episode and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on social media to connect any time and get the latest updates on this and our other programs. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every week. And don't forget to hit the thumbs up button to let us know how we're doing and leave a kind comment. Lastly, don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archives and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, you can hear more of my work on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights podcast. However, I will be back next week with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. If darkness is what you're after, listener, your search is over. Yet, let it be known, you haven't found the darkness. The darkness has found you. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.